Good morning. We will be in the book of Exodus. We are making our way through this Old Testament book. If you are uh, unfamiliar with the Bible, that's okay. Uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so it's really close to the front. We'll be in Exodus chapter 3. And if, uh, if your row happens to have a, a pew Bible on it, that's going to be page 46 or should be pretty close. Exodus chapter 3. And just to remind you uh, where we've been so far, God's people, Israel, are in Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt. The Egyptians don't like them very much. In fact, they dislike them so much they're trying to kill them. Um, but God, God has just met this man named Moses, not just met as in like, oh, hey, I'm God, you're Moses. But, but like has approached Moses as Moses is shepherding uh, his father-in-law's flock out in the wilderness far away from Egypt. And so um, God has just told Moses that he is going to send him to go get Israel, his people, out of slavery in Egypt. So that catches you up to where we are. I'm going to start reading in chapter 3, verse 10. Primarily, we're going to look in verses uh, 12 through or 13 through 22. So let's give attention to God's word. God said, go now, go, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this will be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And, so, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you get will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You'll put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray. 
God in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. And now we pray, Lord, that you would illumine it. Give light to our eyes that we would see and understand what it is that you're saying to us today. You are the great I am. Would you help us to know what that means, Lord? Would you, would you change us by the power of your word and spirit? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I think that there are, anytime a preacher prefaces something with, I think, know that this is, you know, me talking, this is not like gospel truth, but I think that there are three central aspects to human life, right? If you look at your life, there are really three things that I think give every human life, religious or not, shape and meaning, okay? And... I hope to develop these maybe a little bit more in the fall for us as a church. But those three aspects are worship, community, and mission. Worship, community, and mission. And that's true whether, whether you're religious. If this, is, if this is the first time that you have ever set foot in a church or cracked open the Bible or heard a sermon, first of all, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Um, but second, that idea of worship even applies to the non-religious and and. I think it would be helpful to frame those three things as questions. Worship. What is it that your life is built around or on? Who or what is the core of your life that gives it shape and meaning? That's what I mean by worship. What is the central core aspect that gives your life shape and meaning? What is your life centered around? Second, community. Who do you do life with? So as your life is built around this core, who do you do life with? And and by community, we mean not like, you know, Facebook friends or acquaintances, but real community. Who are the people that know you and you know them? Who do you allow into your space? Arthur Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times. He's a a sociologist. And he says that there there are four aspects to human happiness, at least that we can control. Four aspects. That's all there is. If you want to be a happy person, here are the four things that, you know, some expert in some other field is about to tell you. Right. He says faith, family, friends and meaningful work. Faith, family, friends and meaningful work. So, see, a writer for the New York Times said it, not me. Um, I'm kind of boiling down those two middle ones, uh, family and friends, into, into one community, right? People who know you uh, and you know them, right? So, worship, community, and then mission. What is your life about? When you live in the core and you live with these people, what... What do you do? What gives, um, what, what do you, what do you spend your life doing? Now the reason I mention all three of those things is because I think the Bible has real good, substantial answers to each one of those questions. It talks about worship, community, and mission. And I mention them today because I think even the book of Exodus deals with these three things. And what we're going to look at today, what the question that is really that that first question, who or what are you building your life on? Because that's what Moses is about to come face to face with. Moses is meeting God. And so the way that we're going to look at this passage today is we're going to see that a changed life 
If you want a transformed life, that a changed life, a real life, begins by meeting the God who is. Period. The God who is. If, you, if you're looking for a changed life, and a, a real changed life, true change, transformation, comes from meeting the God who is. We're going to look at this under three headings. God has a name. God has a purpose. And God has a plan. And those last two things are kind of similar to each other, but I needed a third and it had to be a P. So anyway, that's how it worked out. This is what happens in my mind early Sunday morning. Okay, just so you know, God has a name, God has a purpose and God has a plan. Let's talk about this. God has a name. What's in a name? Would not a rose by any other name smell as sweet? You might know where that comes from. Romeo and Juliet, William Shakespeare, right? That's the famous act two, scene two. Uh, if you don't know the story, um, you missed 10th grade English. If you, don't, if you don't know the story of Romeo and Juliet, right? Um, Juliet, this scene happens. Juliet is on the balcony outside of her room. She has just met Romeo at this dance party and uh, just immediately fell in love because that's exactly how it happens, right? And... So, the reason she's sad is because Romeo is a Montague, and she is a Capulet, and the Montagues and the Capulets hate each other. And so, she says, for instance, as she's pining away on her balcony, not knowing that Romeo is in the, is in the bushes down below listening to her, she says, deny your name, forget your father, what's in a name, basically implying that names don't really matter. A rose would still smell good even if we called it a, a stink flower, right? Who cares what your name is? Forget your name. And the irony of the situation is that names do matter. They matter quite a lot. Because later on in the play, spoiler alert, they both die. And they die because of their names, the reason they cannot live happily ever after is because of their names. So names matter quite a lot. Think about when, and this is, I, I can speak professionally and authoritatively about this because I do this all the time. When you meet someone, you've met someone and you've talked to them a couple of times and yet they still don't know your name, right? There's this little part of you inside that dies every time. It's like, man, that jerk Kevin still doesn't know my name. Right. Um, there's something about when someone says your name, when they greet you by name, a name has a history, a name has a story. It's about it, it involves the person's character. Zach worked for us, interned for us last summer. And of course, I, I only know him as Zach. He's introduced himself to me as Zach, and that's how I talk to him. But Zach is from here. I'm not. Zach is from Clanton, and that means that um, Zach's family is here. Some of them are actually in the room. And I remember the first time that I heard someone call Zach, Zachary, right? It threw me off because that's not the name that I have for him. But I don't know that story. I don't know the histories that go into Zachary. Zachary's his name. I only know him as Zach. So I think we get the idea that our names, our personal names, 
whether we like it or not, carry a lot of freight. They carry a lot of meaning. And that's no less true in the Bible. In fact, God gives people names that have great weight and significance. And actually, it's not even, it's not any less true of God Himself. God's very name carries great weight and meaning. And so it's fitting, actually, that Moses asked this question. And if you're kind of keeping score, this is actually Moses' second question. We read the first, remember? God says to Moses, hey, I've got a mission for you, I've got a plan, I want you to go to Egypt and bring my people out. And the first question that Moses asks, kind of his first objection is, whoa, who am I? Who am I that I should bring this people out of Egypt? And if you think about the task, that's a really good question, right? Uh, who am I is a good place to start when God gives you a, a huge mission. And it's interesting. Notice, notice that God doesn't answer Moses the way that we answer each other. God does not say to Moses, oh, it'll be fine. No big deal, right? He doesn't minimize the task and say that the mission is going to be easy. And he doesn't maximize Moses' ability. He doesn't look at Moses and say, oh, brother, you got the right resume. I mean, you've been you've been shepherding stubborn sheep out here in the desert where there's hardly any resources. You got all the experience you need to lead people, right? He doesn't say either one of those things. When he answers Moses' who am I question, he says, I will be with you. And that important. I want you to notice that I will be. That's important because it comes into play in the second question. I will be with you. That's how God answers Moses' insecurity. Not by puffing Moses up. Not by making the task chewable, right? Uh, He answers it with himself. He says, it doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you. And so then Moses says, basically, who are you? Right? Moses says, Who am I? God says, I will be with you. And so Moses goes, okay, well, who are you? Right? Moses foresees that when he goes to the people of Israel, they're going to ask, when Moses says, hey, I've got a word from the God of your fathers, they're going to ask, who are you speaking for? What's his name? Right? It's a verification question, which makes a whole lot of sense in this culture because every nation had their own gods. Right. Gods were tribal in the ancient world. And by the way, they kind of still are with one glaring exception. Right. And so it makes sense that when Moses comes to the Israelite elders and tells them, this is who I'm speaking or like, this is what's going to happen. I met this God. It makes sense that they say, uh, who is he? What's his name? How do we know now? That's a good question, but it's also possible That Moses is kind of trying to hide behind this. Moses is not crazy about this mission that God is about to send him on. He doesn't feel up to the task. And that's a a good place to be. So his insecurity is still at work here. And now it's his lack of knowledge. I don't really know you. What am I supposed to say about you? And so that's when God answers with one of the most astounding passages in the Bible. God gives Moses his First name, as it were. God gives Moses his personal name. 
And I don't know that we think about this much because the Bible calls God by many different titles and by many different names. But really, there's only one name. God has only one name. And and that name has a lot of significance. God says, I am that I am. Now, you and I, when I, when I hear I am, we're kind of waiting for the punchline, right? We're kind of waiting for the, the fill in the blank. I am what? Because you and I have to do that, right? The, uh, the, the bucket of I am for you and for me has to be filled with contents, right? I am a pastor, I am a dad, I am a husband, I am whatever, an introvert. You know, whatever, whatever things need to fill up that I am bucket for you, that's how you and I work. There's always something that follows the am. But not in God's case. In God's case, his I am is the content. He just is. I am that I am. Also could be translated, I will be that I will be. Here's what that name communicates to us. One, God is completely self-sufficient. Nothing created him. Nothing can end him. He just is being in and of himself. He is completely perfect and sufficient in and of himself. He is, as we would say, self-satisfied. He is self-existent. He doesn't need something or someone else to supply his energy or his identity. He just is. He is eternal. God doesn't come into being at any point. Nor does He's never born. Nor does he pass out of being. He does not die. He just is. I am That I am. No beginning, no end. Past, present, future, he always is. That's what his name means. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher who lived some 300 years before the birth of Jesus. And Aristotle lived in a culture, Greek culture, that was polytheistic, many gods, right? They had, they had a deity, they had a god for every area of life. What was really interesting about Aristotle is he theorized, he talked about something called the unmoved mover, which only a philosopher is going to come up with a phrase like that, okay? So let's, let me unpack that a little bit. Basically, what Aristotle saw in life around us is that everything, as Newton would later say, right, everything is action and reaction, right? So when I move backwards, before I do that or as I'm doing that, there are neurons moving from my brain down to my muscles, telling them to pick up my bones and step backward. And as I'm doing that, as I'm moving, uh, there's also air moving around, pushing air out of the way. Right. I will never move fast enough to actually make a noise when I do that. But cars do. Right. Things are always moving. And if they're moving, it means that something else has pushed them or moved them. Action and reaction. But Aristotle realized something. There has to be an unmoved mover. There has to be a center that began the whole pushing match to begin with. 
And no one or no thing started that one. It just is. And without realizing, Aristotle is talking about the I am. He's talking about the God of the Bible, the unmoved mover. Nothing starts or finishes him. He just is. All right. So Moses, uh, God's talking to Moses and he says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, if you were going to come up with a list of people that you wanted to come to your aid. Wouldn't it be this guy? The one who has no beginning and no ending. The one who started it all. and will finish it all. The one through whom and to whom is everything else. And then he says this in verse 15. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. Now, we need to talk about this, and I'm going to try to make it quick. The Lord. You'll notice in, in, uh, if you're looking at the Bible page, the Lord is in all capital letters. You actually saw it on the screen way earlier uh, when we read one of our Psalms. You saw the Lord in all capital letters. Lord is actually the word, the Hebrew word Adonai. Okay, when you see Lord in lowercase, that's the word Adonai in Hebrew. All right, that's not this word. This word, well, it's it's the third person. Okay, I'm bringing up grammar now. Jeez, right, it's the third person of I am. So basically, this word is he is. This is the way God wants his people to talk about him. He is. That's his name. He is. Right now. Here's here's where it gets complicated. This word is just four characters. Y H W H. If we were going to use English, Y H W H. We don't know how to pronounce it because. Hebrew scribes, as they wrote these things down, considered that name too sacred to say out loud. And so as they were, and so as Jewish scholars would have the Bible read, the Old Testament read, when they got to the name, they had trained their people to say Adonai, Lord, not this word, because it was too sacred. And that means that even when they wrote it down, they didn't put the vowel points on it. Hebrews, all consonants, we won't go into all that. Basically, they left it untouched. And so that means, and then what they would do is they would put in the vowels for Adonai. And so centuries, millennia really, later, when a guy named William Tyndale was translating the Bible into English, the Old Testament, he came to this word, and it looked like Yehovah. Jehovah. And that's where we get the name Jehovah. But then we realize later on that that's not actually what this says. And so the closest we can get is Yahweh. And it means he is. And that's God's name. That is God's personal name. So fun fact, whenever you read your Old Testament and you come across this all capitalized letter Lord, it's the name Yahweh, the divine name. You can now impress your friends on the weekends with your knowledge of Hebrew Bible. 
Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Do you notice what he did there? He connected that name to his history. This is who knows me. This is who I've walked with. This is how you know me. This is my name going forward to all generations. This is my memorial name. This is how I am to be remembered. And so his name, he is, reveals his unique character. In the same way that Zachary reveals a history and a story and a character to all of the people who have known him his entire life. So God's name reveals something about who he is. The fact that he is, period. He has been, he will always be. He's constant, he's present all the time. He has a name like no other because there's no other like him. But not only does God have a name, he also has a purpose. Look at verse 16. God tells Moses to go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, uh, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. Now, that sounds very odd. That's an odd verb to use. That word that we translate observed is used of a general inspecting his soldiers or of a shepherd inspecting his sheep means to visit. Sometimes it has a negative overtone as when God visits and brings judgment. And it basically means that God knows what's going on and he's coming to see things and check things out and act and move. So when God says, I have surely noticed you, what he's telling these people who have been living life in hard service for 400 years, he says, I haven't forgotten you. I know exactly what's coming, going on, and I'm coming to do something about it. I am Yahweh, and I have certainly observed. I have been paying attention. I'm coming to do something about it. And his purpose is twofold. Here's what he's going to do. He says, I promise that I will bring you out of affliction and bring you to a better place. Right. He's got a twofold purpose. I'm going to rescue you out of your slavery and bring you to a better place. Let's unpack that. He says, I'm going to bring you out of your affliction. This word has been used repeatedly at the beginning of Exodus. And what it means basically refers to people who are poor, needy, oppressed And usually by an enemy more powerful than themselves. That's Israel. And you know what? That's us. Right? We are a people, by virtue of our own sin, who are held in bondage by an enemy greater than ourselves. God says, I see that. And I'm going to come do something about it. Now, if you knew a person who could be named... I am. What do you think he would be like? What do you what do you think he would do with his power and his ability? Do you think he would care about worthless slaves? Because as I thought about this, that was that was one of the things that really that really captured me. And I don't know that I can even really put it into words very well, but this I am 
This God who is takes notice of people who are in bondage to a greater enemy and he says, I'm going to handle it. I'm going to step in. I'm going to break the chains. I had the privilege of speaking at uh, Raleigh's place at camp this past week for their elementary week, and the theme was Creation Sings. And so the idea was that, right, creation in all of its beauty and glory tells us about God. And so we worked on a song together, the campers and I, and maybe a song that you've heard. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Now, at first blush, that song's really about God's creative power. He's made amazing things like the Himalayas and the Grand Canyon, right? The Nile, the Amazon, those are all part of his handiwork. The stars scattered across the universe that we can't even see, those are all his handiwork. He can do all of that. But do you know what's really astonishing to me? The God who can do all that repeatedly steps into human history and rescues his people. Even when it's their own fault. That truly, my God is, that God, that God uses his bigness and his strength and his might to defeat his enemies and rescue his people. So he's not just a faraway God who's untouchable. He's actually a God who draws close and uses his muscles for the benefit of those who cannot. That is, I am. I'm going to turn the air conditioner on. I feel like I'm Moses standing next to the burning bush. If you're cold in the back, don't worry. This one's not for you. It's for up here. My God is so big. Where was I? Okay. So that, that's something else that I want you to chew on. This Yahweh, this God who is, is also a promise-keeping God of boundless compassion. Affliction does not belong in his world. And it is certainly not part of his people's existence, or shouldn't be. And so he moves to take care of it. And he doesn't stop there. Isn't it interesting? God doesn't say, all right, I'm going to bring you out of affliction and then you guys are on your own. Have a good week. Right? He says, I'm going to bring you out of affliction in Egypt and put you in a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to bring you out of this place of hard service where you scratch to get by and give you a land where you will always have plenty of whatever you need. And what that tells us is that God's salvation is not halfway. When God begins a good work, he finishes it. That God's purpose, even in the New Testament, even in our salvation, is to save us from sin and to give us the life, the life of his mercy, the life of his grace. He doesn't he doesn't just leave us to die. God always finishes the work that he begins. I will bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. So when God does something, he doesn't do it halfway. 
So God's purpose is to rescue his people and then bring them all the way home. Friend, if you're in Christ, that same promise is yours. God doesn't leave you to yourself. If he saved you, he will save you to the uttermost. He will bring you all the way home. God has a purpose. God has a plan. God tells Moses to gather the elders together to tell them these things and then to go to Pharaoh. And what they're to tell Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. Our God has met with us. That's the, the word there is kind of an unexpected meeting. They weren't really looking for this. God has appeared to them. He's shown up and said, all right, let's go. And so they're to go to Pharaoh and request leave, basically. Hey, our God has met with us, Yahweh, and we need to go. We need to take a, a journey to go worship and serve him in the wilderness. It's interesting. God says he actually emphasizes the I in this verse. I myself know that the king of Egypt won't let you go. I have a purpose and I have a plan. But you need to know that Pharaoh does not want to play along with my purpose. And that that's part of the plan. How beautiful is that? I know, I myself know that Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. He is not going to like what you have to say. And not even by a mighty hand will he be willing to let you go. Not even if you were to raise a huge army in revolt would Pharaoh be willing to part with you. So I'm going to stretch out my hand and do it for you. And catch the language in the original it's interesting, it's interesting what God doesn't say. He doesn't look at Moses and say, okay, listen, I know this Pharaoh, he's a tough cookie. Let's hope this plan works. Because if not, we're going to have to go to the drawing board and come up with something else. No. God knows ahead of time that he will have to break Pharaoh. He will have to break the king of Egypt, the power of Egypt, in order to get his people out. And that's exactly what he promises to do. He says, I will send out my hand. There's a play on words here in the original. I will send out my hand and Pharaoh will send you out. When I send out my hand against Pharaoh, he will send you out of his land. I'm going to come against him with my wonders. Repeatedly. And Pharaoh eventually will have no choice. He'll have to let you go. Now, why does God tell Moses this? He wants Moses to know and he wants us to know that this is not going to come easy. Right? <clears throat> Some of us are better than others when it comes to meeting uh, rejection, when it comes to getting pushback. But it never comes easy, does it? It never comes easy when someone tells you, nah, not going to happen. Right? When they either reject you or bat you down or whatever, and that's going to happen to Moses. The elders listen to him. Then they get to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, not a chance. And we're going we're gonna to see how this plays out. It actually makes things worse. And so God is telling Moses ahead of time, I know this is going to happen. I know what you're about to face and I want you to expect it. I want you to expect opposition. I want you to expect rejection. I've built that into the plan. I know what's going to happen. And then he says something even cooler. He says, 
Not only will Pharaoh send you out, but you won't come out empty. I'm actually, I'm not, not only am I going to stretch out my hand and force Pharaoh to let you go, but I'm actually going to work in the hearts of the Egyptians so that when you go, they give you all their stuff. You're going you're gonna to go to your neighbors and you're going to say, hey, we're going to take a long journey. Can I have some of your nice stuff? And they're going to say, absolutely. What would you like? We're going to give you gold and silver. We're going to give you so much clothing that you're going to have to, like, you're going to throw them on your kids just so you can get it all out of there. So the victims become the victors. Isn't that what, what happens in a battle, right? And in the ancient world, when an enemy king came in and conquered another people, they plundered them, right? When you lost the battle, that also meant you lost your stuff. If you didn't lose your life, you lost your stuff. How cool that God engineers it so that when he comes in and defeats Pharaoh, he allows his people to walk out with the plunder. And the defeated Egyptians give it willingly. That's how the God who is conquers his enemies. Yes, he uses force against Pharaoh. He uses signs and wonders that devastate Egypt, devastate their gods, and devastate their economy. But he also works in the hearts of individuals. Remember earlier on in the story, the Egyptians had gotten to the point where they hated the Hebrews. The Hebrews were a stench to them. They didn't want anything to do with them. They wanted to oppress them. God's going to reverse those conditions. So that as the Hebrews go out, the Egyptians are going to say, here, what can I give you? How can I enrich you as you leave our country? So God makes it to where the victims become the victors. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing, absolutely nothing my God cannot do. Fast forward a few thousand years John, the Gospel of John in the New Testament, it's a life of Jesus. Jesus is talking with the religious leaders of his day. And like most conversations with religious people, Jesus is very frustrating to them. And what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to, because of the things that Jesus is saying and Jesus is claiming about himself, They're saying, you've got a demon. You don't know God. And he says, look at my works. I don't have a demon. He's like, you're the ones who don't know God. That's really not something you want to say to really religious people, by the way. Um, And so they, they come back. They say, Jesus says this, which is pretty radical. If you think that Jesus is just a mere man... Have you ever thought that? I want you to listen to what Jesus says about himself and reconsider. Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Just so you know, I'm never going to say that to you. Right? You can't make that promise. Right? I can't even look at my children and make that promise. Like, if you'll just obey me, you'll never die. Right? It's not true. Only one person can make that kind of promise. Jesus says, if you keep my word, you will never taste death. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. 
Are you greater than the prophets? They died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus says this in chapter 8, John eight fifty six. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God who is. He is the God who rescues his people out of slavery and makes them rich beyond their wildest imaginations. He changes Hearts. So, what does Jesus come to do? It's in his name. Yahweh saves. Jesus comes to save, to bring you up out of affliction, and to bring you into his good land flowing with milk and honey. Do you know him? Let's pray. Our God and our King, Lord Jesus. We praise you and we thank you for your word and pray, Lord, that you would use it uh, to transform us, to renew us, to make us whole. Help us to see you as the God who saves, who brings us up out of our own self-made affliction and brings us to yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.